All right. Well, it's good to be with you guys. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, we are, as a fellowship group here at Praxis, we are studying the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 12. Uh, tonight, we'll be looking at verses 9 to 13. So I invite you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to flip them open to Romans 12, verses 9 and 13. Paul is going to get into the weeds. Um, He spent the first 11 chapters um, just kind of waxing eloquent on magnificent, profound doctrine. And here in chapters 12 and on, we get into the pragmatics, how this should affect and impact and shape the way we live. And you'll see, even as we read our passage shortly, that this is a very down-to-earth section of Scripture, one that is very challenging as it is clear in terms of what Paul is outlining for us. So let's read our passage tonight, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. This is the word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help, Lord, to not only understand what this passage teaches intellectually, but for our hearts to be gripped, to be convinced and convicted of ways in which we can be more faithful in living out the gospel, ways in which we can love one another and thereby put the lordship, the good lordship of Jesus Christ on display. We ask for humility now that you would bend and break us in order that we might be built up according to what you have prescribed in your word. For we know it is for our good, for our joy, and for your glory. So help us now to not merely listen, but to be engaged with attentive hearts, to be transformed by your living word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we didn't meet, but we... Hope you guys enjoyed your Praxis Pals event, whether you're eating or hanging out, whatever it may be, uh, we trust that God used it to deepen relationships, to form new ones as well. Um, but tonight, we continue our study in the book of Romans. And if you're newer to the group, uh, just a quick recap of where we've been. A few weeks ago, we examined Paul's sweeping charge, his mandate to all believers at the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 12, that in response to God's mercy, in light of the gospel, our impulse is to worship, to offer our lives as a sacrifice. We refuse to conform to this world because we've been set apart, and instead we renew our minds by the word of God to discern, do, and delight in the will of God. 
And this becomes the dominant theme from here on out to the end of Romans, that the apostle Paul teases out what the worship and will of God looks like in everyday life. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor David preached on Romans 12, 3 to 8, unpacking one aspect of our worship, how the community of believers serves. I commend that sermon to you. It's on our website. You can download it if you miss it. But the general gist was that driven by the gospel, we serve. We serve in humility, strategically employing our time, our talents, our treasures to build up the body and encourage one another towards greater faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Well, tonight, Paul will give us another area to inspect, another sphere in our lives to consider, that in addition to serving, our worship of God must be reflected in our loving, in love. That love is the crowning jewel, the hallmark trait of any authentic believer. Now, if you scan our passage, it's not like these instructions we just read are particularly novel or startling, right? In fact, they might just seem like a random smattering of things that good Christians do. But they are more connected than they might initially appear. Maybe your Bible, if you're using the ESV, you know, it has labeled this section as marks of the true Christian. And while accurate, these marks are all sourced from a heart transformed by love. They're just different dimensions or expressions of Christian love. Now, the brevity of Paul's sentences here is meant to drive each exhortation into our hearts to confront us until we evaluate whether they exist, whether they be true in our own lives. If gospel doctrine that we've been studying for 11 chapters is manifest in gospel living, in gospel loving. So first, Paul establishes his case. He's going to present his argument. He takes up the topic of love and why it is necessary in becoming of any believer. A sincere Christian will exhibit sincere love. Look again at verse 9. Paul writes, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, Paul's exhortation to love genuinely assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes the possibility of counterfeiting this love, of faking it. The word for genuine here is actually a negation of the word hupakritas, which sounds like hypocrite. You follow? Paul is saying, be sincere in love by avoiding hypocrisy. Don't be an actor who wears a certain mask in one scene and then dons a different one in a different setting. The apostle is warning us of putting on a show. And we know this temptation, how we can play the part, right? Show up to praxis or to church, and it's, very easy to front. Brother, sister, praise God. How are you? How can I be praying for you? 
only to walk away shuddering. Ooh, you know, they kind of creep me out. They give me the heebie-jeebies. She's weird or he smells funny. Not that it happens here, uh, other churches, of course. But Paul teaches Christians are to be different. They are to be earnest in love. And we know our Lord and Savior Jesus certainly stressed the significance of this. He stakes the entirety of his followers' authenticity and identity on what? On love. How will you know who is a true Christian? How can you distinguish the phony from the real deal? Jesus unequivocally declared, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Not Bible knowledge, not perfect church attendance, not how much you give to charity. By this, what is this? That you love, that you love one another. And since love is the paramount attribute, Jesus, he also reserves his harshest rebuke for the imposters, for those who try to pass themselves off as worshipers of God when they lack this essential quality of love. He pulls no punches when addressing the charlatans. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hypocrites. It's pretty ruthless, right? A serious insult because of a serious offense. But I want you to understand this. Jesus, Jesus never calls his disciples hypocrites. Hear me clearly. If you are a Christian, you may at times act hypocritically, but if you are truly a believer, you are not a hypocrite. Kevin DeYoung makes a crucial distinction when he says this, doing what is right, when you don't feel like doing what is right, is maturity. But professing one thing in public and living a different way in private is hypocrisy. Do you see that difference? Scribes and Pharisees, they are attempting to do what is right. All their energy, all their effort is invested in pretending. But when you and I, Christian, when we fail, we're not trying to pretend that we're something we're not. I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I struggle, I sin. I don't have it all together. Hypocrites hide their true colors. But Christians, we are striving to live out ours. As imperfect as we are, we confess our shortcomings. We seek forgiveness. We attempt to love from a pure heart. And when we don't, we plead for grace. We plead for grace to grow. Now, you may think I'm making a big fuss about nothing, but this is absolutely crucial. We need to understand a sincere love flows out of being loved by God, not trying to earn his love. And if you get it backwards, you put yourself in peril of being a hypocrite because you're performing for approval instead of already having it. 
And this principle is true as Paul elaborates upon the other features of Christian love in our passage. If we attempt these actions, these behavior by mere grit and discipline, if we work solely from the outside in, we will only have a shell of piety. No, but our virtue and transformation are meant to emerge from a heart undone and then nourished by the gospel in response, as Paul has said, to the mercy of God. You see, Christian ethic is derived from a heart of gratitude. Having examined Paul's general charge for genuine love, he continues by filling in the details. You could essentially put a colon at the end of verse, uh, not at the end of verse, at the end of this first sentence. So you could say, let love be genuine, colon, and the rest of our passage will fill it out, will describe how this love is to be genuine. And that's what we're going to look to for the rest of tonight. At first, sincere love is holy. This sincere Christian love is holy. Our peers, our society espouses a love that is arbitrary, tolerant without exception, a love that is self-determined. But Paul whittles away all the fluff to give shape to Christian love. In a day and age where anything goes, sincere love, we discover, is holy. Verse 9 says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor, hold fast. These words are loaded with emotion to really convey the intensity of this exhortation. You know, when it's not enough to say you don't like tomatoes, what do you do? You go for the jugular. You get all dramatic, right? I detest, I despise, I abhor tomatoes. Abhor is hate taking up a notch, which is why some translations have hate exceedingly. Hold fast. Well, hold fast is just as strong. It communicates a tight grip, a I cannot let go. Hold fast describes intimate union, like when a man leaves father and mother to cling to his wife to become one. Do you see what Paul is doing? Contrary to public opinion, there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground, at least with Christian love. Love is discerning, holding polar opposite positions on evil and good. Love exceedingly hates evil. And maybe that doesn't sit well with us. There's no way hate can be a holy virtue. But what determines whether hate is appropriate is not the act or attitude, but the object of the hate. Is it right to hate children? No. Is it appropriate to hate the abuse of children? Absolutely. Genuine Christian love is not willy-nilly or left for your own choosing. 
sincere love, according to the Bible, never directs us towards evil, towards sin, but away from it. And conversely, sincere love never flees from good and what is right, but runs towards it, clings to it, holds fast, which naturally raises two questions, right? What is evil? What is good? Well, we don't have to search very far for some clarity. Just back up to Romans 12 too. Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Praxis is your love pure and holy. Not defined by society or your own whims and notions, but according to holy scripture. We don't have to overcomplicate this. It's actually very simple is the trajectory of your life, your thoughts, your morality, your ambitions, your actions, your influence. Is it all aligning more and more with God's word or deviating from it? Christian love traces the pattern the scriptures have set in place. First, sincere love is holy. Second, sincere love is committed. Sincere love is committed. Verse 10 continues, and Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection. In the New Testament, the label most commonly used to address believers is, guess what? Not Christian or saint, like we might assume, but it's brother, brother. And that really frames how we should view each other with tenderness as brothers and sisters who belong to the same family, the family of God. But let's be real. Let's be honest. The idea is a lot nicer than the reality. Because even within the church, we're prone to draw lines, right? Our allegiance, our affection is conditioned upon whether others meet up to our standards, our preferences, our approved criteria. We think to ourselves when we meet someone, are they too boring? Are they too funny? Are they too smart? Are they too dumb? Too young? Too old, maybe? That last one stings a little. But friends, when we are busy sizing people up, we're not loving our family. We're playing favorites. That's not devotion to another. That's division. When we are slicing and dicing to see who is and isn't worthy of our friendship, of our company. But what does Paul prescribe? Brotherly affection. He's not necessarily referring to gushing with emotion, but being resilient in your commitment to one another. That's why the illustration Paul uses is so fitting and profound because think about it, what is a family? A family is about being before doing. You are a sibling to your brother or sister before you ever play with them or help them tie their shoe. The relationship precedes everything. The commitment is already baked in. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what he is emphasizing. 
And yes, many of us know from firsthand experience, family, family is a messy thing. There's drama, there's fighting, there's hair pulling, broken toys, hurt feelings. But listen, even if you aren't tight with your sibling, nothing can undo that relational reality. Until death, they are, whether you like it or not, they are your brother or sister. And it is the same with the family of God, but with one caveat. Not even death can sever these relationships. Have you ever thought of it like that? Paul is only commissioning us to do something that will extend into heaven. A sincere love recognizes forever, pledges your life to those you share eternal life with. Praxis, let me ask, are you relentless in how you care for those around you? Or are you quick to dispose people, to burn bridges once you no longer have use for them or there's a falling out. If I can be blunt, one of the sadder ways I've seen this play out is when people move on from praxis because their comfort is threatened or their closer friends no longer attend. Now, don't get me wrong. Those reasons may be valid in certain scenarios. There are legitimate reasons for transitioning out of this ministry or others. But I think one issue worth considering is this. It's whether your presence at anything is contingent upon other people's appreciation and commitment to you or it's contingent upon yours to them. Brotherly affection. Do you model this kind of loyalty? that in your love and commitment to others, people might actually wonder if that girl you're talking to is somehow related to you or that guy you're encouraging is indeed your biological brother. Now, Paul spells out one dimension of how this commitment uh, would be demonstrated at the end of verse 10. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, What we have to know is the Greco-Roman culture was obsessed with competition. You just think about the Olympic Games, the OG ones, right? Athletes would battle each each other, uh, oftentimes to the death, I think. Maybe not. (laughs) Should have fact-checked that one. But um, they would strain with all their might to finish first, right? to win and bask in the limelight, in the glory. And what Paul is doing is he's extracting that mentality and then adapting it to achieve a different sort of victory. Not so that we might secure the honor for ourselves, but that we might show honor to one another. Churches today may still battle, but tragically it's over the wrong things. You probably heard of worship wars or church splits because a congregation fought over the budget or over the color of the carpet. And yet the one thing Paul actually permits and allows us to compete over is neglected, showing honor. You know, I naturally think of Asian parents 
uncles and aunties bickering over a restaurant check and who will get to pay. Well, it's kind of like that, but Christian, Paul is encouraging us. Be a leader here. Fight hard to finish first in honoring others. Instead of slandering, how about sharing how you're encouraged by another? How you see God at work in and through someone else? I mean, if you're going to gossip, gossip about God's grace in the life of a brother or sister. Or honoring could simply be in preferring to defer. That out of sincere love, you let others decide where to eat, who sits shotgun, what to say in a meeting, or how to plan a party. A sincere love is committed to seeking the interests of others above our own. Fourth, right? Fourth. Sincere love is passionate. A sincere love is passionate. Verse 11. That's actually third, huh? Okay. I, I didn't, we didn't do math in seminary. Um, third, sincere love is passionate. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Paul now shows how sincere love impacts our disposition. It produces a passion that affects our hands and our heart. The first command guards us against laziness with our hands, slothfulness. The second command guards us against laziness in our hearts, telling us to be fervent. And these two combined complement each other towards one consuming goal, serving the Lord with all that we are. As one pastor put it, be as pragmatic as a businessman and as passionate as a poet. Now, that's intriguing because when we think of passion, especially a passionate Christian, my bet is we have certain caricatures that pop into our heads. We think of someone who raises their hand in musical praise or someone who's vocal about their convictions and yells a lot. But the metric for a vibrant and passionate Christian is not in some ecstatic experience or a loud personality. Notice in this verse, the spotlight of zeal and passion doesn't terminate on the individual, on the person, but on the Lord. The measure, you see, of passion is not how we flail our arms or the volume of our voice, but the direction, the direction of our devotion, where we're focusing and investing all of our efforts. Look, we're all passionate people. I hope you realize that. We're all passionate people. From the raging alcoholic, to the BTS fanatic, to the Christian. We're just passionate about different things. And I think this is a timely and relevant charge because it collides with what our current generation struggles with. We're fickle people, right? I mean, we've coined an acronym for how wishy-washy we can be. We have FOMO, fear of missing out. Now, praise God, there are, these are unique times where we're afforded an abundance of choices 
you know, so many new restaurants to try, so many fun activities to do on the weekend, whether it's climbing, going to the beach or Disneyland, even so many ministries here at Lighthouse that we can participate and serve in. But look, the danger is with each additional option, our passion can be spread too thin. Paralysis analysis is more likely to happen when there's more things to analyze. And if we're not careful, we end up sitting by the wayside, waiting, waiting, wasting time because we're so scared of missing out on a better option later on. And then later becomes never. This is true in the church as well. We may be reluctant to sign up for small groups, slow to volunteer for a ministry, or hold off to the very last minute to register for an event. Is the immediate application to sign up for retreat? If you haven't already, maybe. Yes, I don't know. Let the Spirit convict and move you as He will. But in all seriousness, why are we so sluggish concerning these opportunities? Because we don't want to regret our decision should something more appealing show up down the road, right? But such an attitude reveals what we're actually about. We're not really interested in serving the Lord on those occasions, but serving ourselves. Slothfulness is usually a sign of selfishness. Because if there's anything, if there's anything we should be fast to and fervent in, it should be in how we serve the Lord, the one who has redeemed and ransomed us, the one by which we have life in the first place. Again, not in order to gain God's approval, but out of gratitude that we are approved in Jesus Christ. Paul has front-loaded the gospel in the first 11 chapters so that there's no mistaking it. He is merely nudging us along in these final five, highlighting a proper response. Again, not out of guilt, but gratitude. It is a universal principle. We serve those we love. And sincerity of heart will be demonstrated in a servant's heart. And don't get me wrong, I am encouraged. I am truly encouraged by many of you who are on the front lines of this, who are pouring yourself out for the Lord, stewarding this season of life to magnify and highlight the infinite worth of our Lord and Savior. I see you full of passion on Thursday evenings, Sunday mornings, and everything between. Official, unofficial, you are ready, eager, and engaged to love and serve. But at the same time, there are others who, and I say this delicately, it's time to move off of the sidelines, to be decisive and start serving the Lord. There's nothing, there's no one more worthy of our passion. Fifth, fourth, my numbering's all, all wrong. My, my ancestors would be ashamed. But fourth, sincere love is persistent. Sincere love is persistent. 
verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, hope is the little theme of this little verse. It is the object that ties the trio of exhortations together. And many of you know this. Many of you have heard of the main distinction between Christian hope, biblical hope, and the world's hope. Worldly hope is wishful thinking. You know, like, I hope the Lakers win the championship. I hope I get a promotion. Those things may happen, but they may very well not. The Christian hope Paul speaks about is objective and sure because there is no room for probability. Nothing is left to chance. Christian hope, you see, is anchored in the gospel. And we know the good news cannot be altered. And that's reason to rejoice. I mean, you could substitute it in there. Rejoice in certainty. Rejoice in fact. Rejoice in truth. Rejoice in the gospel. All other earthly hope has the possibility of failing you, but not God. And our love for God and others is evident then in biblical hope. Hope enables us to rejoice because we can be confident God always has our good in mind, that the best is yet to come. Hope enables us to be patient in tribulation because we trust and know any trial is not for our demise, but ultimately for our benefit. God doesn't vow to shield us from every trouble, but he does vow to redeem it. The sparrow may still fall, but not without the Father's knowledge, permission, and good design. So whether our journey takes us to the mountaintops or plunges us deep into the valleys, we can remain composed. We are dialed in, tuned to the hope of the gospel. And one way we rehearse this and maintain this perspective is by being constant in prayer. Have you ever heard a recording between someone in a terrible accident and the 911 dispatcher? You know, the person is in a frenzy, just frenetic, will share information that is relevant and important about the car crash so that the dispatcher can send help. But part of the comfort also comes from simply staying on the line conversing with the dispatcher as they reassure the individual of the truth. It's going to be okay. Help is on the way. That connection keeps them sane. It keeps them grounded and hopeful. It gives them strength to persist. Beloved, during turbulent times, during immense sorrows, we are constant in prayer to keep our hearts tethered to God to his truth. When we remain in his love, then we can persevere. We're persistent as we pray scripture, as we speak truth to our own souls, to feed our faith, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that the testing of our faith produces something lasting, something steadfast, that love endures all things, and so we press on. Lastly, sincere love is generous. Sincere love is generous. 
verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute here is a word you're probably more familiar with than you might realize. Here in the original, koinanuntes, koinanuntes, which kind of sounds like koinonia, which if you've grown up in the Christian circles, means fellowship, fellowship. You see, at the heart of Christian community is an interest in contributing to the needs of others. This is what sincere love does when we gather, what real Christian fellowship is all about. Not just getting together to watch a movie or kick around a soccer ball or grab dinner. Those things aren't bad per se, but they ought to serve a greater purpose. There are occasions for fellowship to happen. The context for us to rub shoulders so we know, we learn how we can better minister and help each other out. Look, you just can't figure out the needs of people without being with people. So by all means, hang out, play board games, go get boba, but make sure to leverage these ordinary moments to gain insight on how to love one another. Sure, contributing, this might mean learning about who is strapped for cash and then helping out financially that those with money may be able to pay for a meal or cover an expense. But listen, contributing is not just about cash. Remember, the whole point is to meet needs. You can pick up groceries for the disabled or those that are swamped by a busy week. Organize and facilitate a book club to foster accountability and mutual edification. Babysit to allow a young couple to go out on a date. Look, you can be generous without giving money, but you cannot be generous without giving. To show us how broad and wide this application can be, Paul stretches us in an area we like to keep private to ourselves, our own homes. Read that last half of verse 13 carefully. Paul doesn't only write, show hospitality. You see that? He effectively pushes out the, us out the door and he says, seek, seek to show hospitality. And this would have resonated with Paul's audience because back then Christians were often on the move. They were on a mission to bring the gospel to unreached areas, but they were met with fierce opposition. Those who hated the faith, those who persecuted believers for it, And in these dangerous situations, Christians had to rely upon the kindness of others for shelter and safety. In fact, this word for seek is the same word often translated, get this, persecuted. Persecuted. Do you get the parallel Paul is drawing up? Just as vigorous, just as strategic as the world is in persecuting Christians, So we should be just as vigorous, just as strategic, and more in persecuting Christians. But where the world is seeking their harm, we are seeking to show hospitality, to be a mobile hospital, if you will. 
I think this transforms how we think about hospitality. It's not just a responsibility reserved for those who live in a big house or who are fortunate enough to have bought a home. Hospitality is something we all can do. We only have to pursue, which means it's less about owning a home and more about being a homie. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought that was clever. Now I realize it's very lame, but you get my point. Not a building, but a person. Both of these exhortations in verse 13 have us on the hunt. You know, we often associate contributing to, or we often associate contributing to needs with tithing, right? As authorizing a reoccurring deposit, just set it and forget it. We imagine hospitality as welcoming people who may stumble upon where we live and come through our doors unannounced. And while that may be one element of contributing and hospitality, Paul is putting the burden, the onus upon our shoulders. Giving is not about writing a check as much as it is seeing and addressing a need. Hospitality is not so much about receiving someone as it is going on the offense, pursuing people. Both need to be active because sincere Christian love is never passive. Just look at the cross. Generosity always requires initiative. Friends, could you be generous? Maybe with even in the intangible things you have. Could you be generous with your reputation? Putting your insecurities on the line to befriend others. Could you literally host some newcomers so that they're incorporated into community so that they might feel the love of Jesus Christ? I mean, if you don't have your own place, partner with someone who does or organize something at the park. It's free, it's public. Here's something that's accessible and it doesn't require much planning or effort. During snack time, just wander around. Strike up a conversation. Make it your goal to talk to one new person during fellowship or after service. Practice, let's be so sincere and generous in our love, we're willing to take the first step, no matter how big or how small. As I was studying this passage, I found it so convicting because it's crystal clear and it gets to the heart of our faith. Whether we really recognize and rest upon the mercies of God. You know, you guys are a smart bunch. These exhortations are not hard to understand. It's basic Christian love. The real challenge is living it out. And that's why this will take a lifetime to learn, to learn together, to do this because the application is unending. It's inexhaustible. But we can be encouraged but because we're not left to our own devices to figure this out. And it's not like this is all foreign to us, abstract, as if we don't have someone who models it for us. Because we know we are recipients of such sincere love. It has been emulated to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The sincerity of Jesus' love for his people is demonstrated through his life, death, and resurrection. 
abhorring evil, holding fast to good. Jesus came not to turn a blind eye to our rebellion, but to redeem, to ransom a people for himself. With unwavering commitment, Jesus pledges his love, his life to you by going to the cross. He seeks our interests above his own. And we read of it in the Gospels. There at Gethsemane, Jesus did not relent in prayer, but passionately gave himself in order to meet our greatest need, to pay the penalty of sin and die in our place. Jesus pursued us to the uttermost to reconcile us to the Father and welcome us back into his family. All this mercy, all this grace, all this love to prove the sincerity of his heart towards sinners that we might go and do the same. Practice by the sincerity of our love, we broadcast Jesus Christ to the world, to one another. We showcase the power of this gospel and the authenticity of our faith. Let's pray. God, your word is sobering because it reveals to us our lack of obedience is not out of a lack of understanding, but a lack of willingness, an unwillingness to die to self, to submit to the authority and teaching of Scripture, and ultimately the authority and teaching of our Lord and Savior. And yet, Lord, a bruised reed you do not break. Father, you wound us so that you can restore us. That as you expose our shortcomings, our failures, you provide us grace. You are kind and loving towards us. That as we marvel at your patience, your devotion, your affection for your own, it causes our hearts to be overwhelmed. It enlarges our view to those around us that we too might demonstrate the love we have received. And Father, I pray that as we have our hearts saturated, soaked in the mercies that you have freely lavished upon us, Lord, it would be our delight, our joy to love one another to love Christ, and to love his people. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.